You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health Podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Hello, I'm Teresa McKee, your host for A Mindful Moment. Thank you for joining me as we explore ways to increase mindfulness in our day-to-day experiences. In addition to our regular weekly podcast, we also have the privilege of interviewing experts from around the world to further our understanding of how to live mindfully. As an ex-Mormon and ex-millionaire, Doug Cartwright founded online company The Daily Shifts to inspire lasting transformation of the mind, body, and soul. Now an app, a masterclass, and a blog, The Daily Shifts has appeared on ABC News, on Spectrum TV, and in Psychology Today, among others. Recently, Doug chronicled his personal journey of introspection and healing in his new book, Holy We're Alive. The book is Doug's Story, A Psychedelic Journey into Meditation, Silent Retreats, Astrophysics, Neuroscience, Philosophy, and All Forms of Self-Healing. Doug's Story is how he shifted his perspective on life and to help readers shift theirs. Welcome, Doug. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, read the book, and I first off want to say thank you for the perspective check start with the you know earth and the stars and the millions of galaxies and all of that is a great reminder I think to all of us I actually do that so I drive to the beach when I'm starting to feel like I have a big problem and all I have to do is really sit there for a while and look at the ocean and I realize I'm not that significant right it's not that big of a problem so I really did appreciate you opening the book with that. It's, it's something I do as well. I live up in Topanga Canyon so in LA so being in this deep nature and being able to like take a moment and get away from the city and really embody the earth. It really helps you calm down. I just think it's so important because we lose perspective. You know, we get so focused on things. I wanted to start off with one that is at the heart of a lot of what I teach in my trainings. But you say in the book, most suffering happens because we're stuck on an idea of how life is supposed to be. Mm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's so fascinating to me because as I kind of went through my spiritual journey in 2017, I realized that majority of my suffering, the reason I was I was so angsty in my life was because I was trying to get 
a specific outcome that I thought was the right way. I think I should make this much money or have this type of title at my job, or I should be dating this type of person or trying to finagle and get everything to be a specific way. When I, then I had like this moment, you know, it really happened when I was leaving religion, realizing that there's 8 billion people on planet earth and everyone has a different preference of how they think life is going to be. And so you put 8 billion people on planet earth and everyone tries to force and manipulate and angle their way into the world. And of course, this is going to be a big mess, right? Because no one's going to get the right way. And, you know, we saw it really extravagantly during the election. The right is convinced they're the right side and the left is crazy. And the left is convinced that they're right and the right is crazy. And you just have these moments of like, no one's crazy, but the reason we suffer internally is because we're trying to force and manipulate our belief system out onto the world. And when you really think about it, where did we learn our belief patterns? Well, there's so many different inputs, where we were raised, when we were raised, what part of the world we were in, what our teachers taught us, what our friends taught us, and no two people have the exact same experiences, which is crazy. And so we have all these incredible experiences through our lives that force and create an idea of how the world is supposed to be. And then we go out into the world, try and force and manipulate our way out into the world. And it's just, this is not going to work because there's too many of us and everyone has a completely different perspective. You have a chapter called, what's your story? That our stories are what keep us from reaching those depths of gratitude or awe or wonder about the miracle that we're even here and what goes on in life. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. I know, and these are your words, I don't want people to think I'm being offensive, but you use your fat kid story. Yeah. Yeah example of this. And so could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, totally. I think as I, you know, as I grow older and do more interpersonal work, um, I realized that almost every human being I've talked to at one point in their life had an experience, usually in their childhood, that was unfavorable. And in a intense experience where they were bullied or teased or saw an intense experience, they created a story about why they're not good enough. That's usually what it boils down to. I, I believe I'm not good enough. And the way that happened for me was growing up, I was overweight, kind of a chubby kid. And I got teased on the playground for being, for being overweight and being chubby. When I was in second grade, I actually remembered the, the memory, which is crazy. You know, when you're seven years old to have a distinct memory on the playground, you know, all those years ago of a kid making fun of my shorts because I was wearing a size extra large. And this kid who made fun of me was a fifth grader and I was in second grade and he would have the same brand of shorts on. He was a medium. He was a small scrawny kid. And he's like, you're only in second grade and you're wearing an extra large, you fatty. And in that moment, I created a story that I'm like, oh, something must be wrong with me. And because something's wrong with me, I don't fit in. I don't belong. And I'm the fat kid. And because I'm the fat kid, I'm not lovable. So because of my core root, I believe that something was wrong with me. I then had to find other ways to compensate to fit in. And so that's when we start creating new identities of trying to fit our way in because at our core, we believe that something was wrong with us. And having this type of realization, when I, you know, it wasn't until I was almost 30 years old where I had this realization that I was like, wow, my whole life I've been trying to fit in because at the core, I feel like I'm unlovable. And so in the book, I talk about that we all have a story. And so the way we kind of diagnose our stories is I always say, you know, what are you really ashamed of? What would you be terrified if the world found out about you? 
And that could be, you think you're not attractive, you're ugly, you're fat, you've got substance abuse issue, a gambling issue, debt issue, whatever it may be. What are you trying to hide from the world? And diagnosing where that story actually began is the first step into freeing and healing that story. Absolutely. And the story making, which everyone does, I agree with you completely. Those early stories stick and we don't even realize where it came from, but we also do it day to day. We see something and we make up a story to fill in the blanks and we don't realize we can change the story. So whether it's a long-term old story that's affecting how we feel about ourselves or whether it's how we're perceiving the world in the moment, we can always change the story. And people are frequently surprised when I say, well, why don't you change the story? You know, if they're upset about something, it's like, we're making it up. And again, it's normal, but I just don't think a lot of people are aware that that's what they're doing. So. And I would add to that note, I think being able to realize that you have the power to change your story is liberating and it actually increases your quality of life. And so it's understanding that you have the, the skills and the power and the ability to change any story you, you have in your life is the first step in really being able to seek radical transformation. I totally agree. So you talk about filling voids through external sources in the book. And I was wondering if you could talk about why that's pretty futile. Yeah, I had a really interesting decade in my life, my 20s. I got into a career that was 100% commission-based sales, and I got really, 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 really good at it and made a lot of money in my 20s, which was a blessing and a curse. And you know, by the time I was 24, I'd made a million dollars. I was a, the, one of the youngest leaders at my company and was growing kind of this, what I believe to be like this empire. And when you make kind of that money in your 20s, I did what any normal 20-year-old male would do, and I spent it all. And I was buying $100,000 cars and traveling the world and sitting first class and going to, I was a big sports fan. And so you could catch me at every major sporting event from the Super Bowl to the NBA Finals to the World Series to the Masters, you know, front row with the best seats. And I was doing everything that I thought that I was supposed to be doing. You know, when you make that much type of money, you know, supposed to spend it and have experiences. And I had this moment in my 20s where, you know, I didn't have like crazy, insane private jet money, but I was doing really, really well. And had this moment where I kind of hit the ceiling and kind of had done the travel, had done the sporting events, had the fancy cars, had the great apartment, was dating the pretty girls. And I still felt completely miserable. And it was actually an incredible, scary time in my life because there wasn't another opportunity or resource or experience to go have. I kind of did it all. And I'm like, I don't know where to go now. Like I went and bought all the things and did all the experiences and I still feel like crap inside. Where do I go? And that's when I realized I'm like, wow, you know, we, we hear it a million times. Like, you know, money's not going to make you happy, but I made all the money and spent all the money and still wasn't happy and really feeling what I term in the book, the success void, where I looked successful, but I was really struggling with an internal void. Maybe not that everyone can make a million dollars right now, but I think it's a common problem where people, they feel the discomfort, but instead of really doing the inner work to figure out what the discomfort is, they do try to fill that void with things. And you're right, it doesn't work. The money thing too, I want to clarify, studies show that once you have your needs met, now if you don't have your needs met, money does make a huge difference, obviously. But once you have your basic needs met, there's a threshold to how much happiness more money adds. And I think the number is at $75,000. 
Beyond that, there's no measurable difference in happiness based on money. So it's a common misunderstanding that if you, know, if you have all those fancy bells and whistles and cars and houses or whatever it is, that then you'll be happy. And it's never then. It never gets there, That's, right? Yes, agreed. In the book, you describe self-love as a superpower. And I was wondering if you could tell us why. Yeah, um, I think self-love, radical self-love is the greatest gift you can give yourself and others those around you, because until you truly, truly love yourself at the core, a part of you is going to be craving or needing some sort of external validation, right? Whether that's from your partner, from your parents, or from your boss or your friends, because there's a void inside. If you don't have self-love, there's a void and you want to have that void filled with love. And so you seek outside of yourself to get that void filled. And that creates us to make decisions whether it's who we date or what job we go for or where we live, we're going to make decisions based upon what we think other people want for us so we can get that validation. And then really you give up your power because you're living for someone else. You're living based upon what you think other people's expectations are. And so when you do the work and look at the ugly parts of your lives and go and heal your stories, what happens is you learn to fill that void yourself. And when you truly learn to love yourself and fill that void, what happens as a byproduct of that is you gain this incredible confidence to do what you truly want to do. And the chains come off because you no longer need the validation. You'll always want external validation. I mean, external validation feels great and you always want it. But as long as you need it, you'll be at the mercy of other people. When you really, really, really love yourself, it gives you the confidence and the permission to show up as the highest version of yourself and pursue the things you truly want to because you're doing it for you. It doesn't matter how it lands. It doesn't matter how well it's perceived. It doesn't matter what your boss or your partner or your friends think because you're doing it for you. And when I truly, truly learned to love myself, that gave me the confidence and the permission to leave my old work, to start my new company, to move across the country, to finally have the courage to write my book because I was so full of self-love that other people's opinions of it wasn't going to affect my work and my decisions. It creates an interesting upward spiral too, I think, because once you heal those stories, again, you've got to go back and get rid of those old stories that are causing you to misperceive who you really are. Yeah. Once you do that, and once you love yourself where you, to the point that you don't really worry about what other people think, it opens up a million more possibilities because now you're not afraid to take a risk because you don't care if other people see you fail. You know what I mean? So it, right. it, it just, I don't know, it's like, it is a super booster for sure. And on that too, what's really beautiful is you start attracting different community and different people, right? And you know, the best thing I can do for you and anyone in my community is love myself because now I'm able to show up for them. I'm not using other people to fix me. I can show up as a good friend, a good coworker, a good partner. And you know, being able to vibrate with such love not only helps those around you, but you also attract new friends and new community, which is really powerful. It absolutely is. We'll continue this conversation right after this brief message. Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting in the book is your description of your white rabbit tattoo. Mm. I wondered if you could share what that tattoo represents. I've got one tattoo right here on my shoulder. Um, it was sparked from the idea from the movie, The Matrix. And in the movie, The Matrix, Neo, who's the uh, main character, there's some weird synchronicities kind of happening in his life. And he's kind of curious of all these weird people coming in 
and out. And um, there's a scene in the movie where he's kind of asleep at his desk and on his computer pops up the phrase that says, follow the white rabbit. And he's all confused. He's like, what, is, what does that mean? And then like shortly after someone knocks on his door and it's a group of friends going out to party and they invite him and he's like, no, I can't have to work tomorrow. And then a woman in the scene leans in and she has a white rabbit on her shoulder, a tattoo. So he's like, oh, maybe I should follow the white rabbit. So he decides to go out to the party where he meets this woman, Trinity. And, you know, those that have seen the movie, he ends up taking the red pill and realizes, you know, we live in a simulation and it's all, it's a really, really fun movie. So I decided to get the white rabbit tattoo for myself because for me in my life, I've had so many incredible synchronicities. And I believe that life is always asking us to engage with it whether it's people you meet and connections you have and ideas that are kind of sparked to you, whether it's through meditation. And when you kind of follow these clues or these breadcrumbs, follow the white rabbit, life will unfold in such a way that you can't possibly predict. And in my experience, it's always turned out 10 times better than I could have ever imagined on myself. So when I take the risk, when I go to the edge of the cliff and I'm gonna leave my career or leave a relationship or move across the country and I just jump into it, and follow the white rabbit, uh, the universe usually almost always gives me, blesses me more than I could ever imagine. And life turns out a lot better when you follow the clues of life. I totally agree with that. And yeah. I believe that way myself, I just don't have the tattoo, but <laughs> if people paid more attention, they would see the synchronicities happening. Yes. They're not paying attention or they think it's a coincidence or they blow it yeah. off. I never do. I'm very in tune with that. It's always led me in a great direction or I've I maybe gotten somewhere, not the way I thought I would, but I eventually get there, you know, so I really do try to live that way. And it makes life more fun, frankly. Uh, way more fun. Mystery. <laughs> yeah. I always say you can't predict the path. You know, you can have goals and, and things you want to accomplish, but the way you actually get there is never going to be how you plan. And it's always going to be left and right and up and down. But if you just lean in and follow the clues, you usually get to the, your desired destination and it's better than you could have imagined. And with a lot less stress and resistance, right? If you just kind of allow more, yeah. it's trying to control. You write that practicing mindfulness makes us better people. Yeah, I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier of like, we're trying to force our will into the world in the way we think it's supposed to be. And I don't remember who to give credit to, but my favorite definition of mindfulness is being completely present and accepting the current moment without wanting anything to be different. And I love that. And I remind myself of that almost daily. And the story I share in the book was I was in LA before I moved here and I had a bunch of emails I needed to get to. And I had a 45 minute Uber ride to my next meeting. And I get in this Uber and I pull out my phone to start responding to emails. And I had one of those Uber drivers that was just chatty, 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 chatty. It was asking me a million questions. And my initial response in my head was like, man, I wish this guy would just shut up. Like I have to get to my emails. And then I remembered that quote of mindfulness, you know, to accept the present moment without wanting anything to be different. So I took a deep breath. I relaxed my shoulders. I put my phone down and I totally engaged with this driver. And he was talking about, you know, I grew up in Utah and how he loves spending time in Park City and his favorite ski resorts and his favorite restaurants. And we were joking and laughing. And finally, I get to my destination, hadn't responded to any emails but I felt, you know, really content and as before I leave to get out of the Uber, he turns around and says to me, he goes, Hey, you know, just wanted to say thank you for your engaging conversation. I'm actually a developer and I work at home. I actually don't need the money to Uber, 
but I just miss human connection. And the reason I drive people is for human connection. So I just want to say, thank you so much. Our, our drive made my whole day. And I get out of that car and I'm like, whoa. And I just felt so lit up and so full of love and so full of joy. And I had in a really special moment, I was able to share with someone because I was practicing mindfulness. And so I received such an incredible gift. And so anytime I'm feeling stressed or anxious or uptight, I just remember that quote, accept the present moment without wanting anything to be different. And it allows you to lean into this current situation with so much ease and grace. Absolutely. And it, again, ties back to the stories we tell ourselves. Right. If you're focused on the present moment, you're not making up a story. You're paying attention to what's really happening now. I think next I'd like you to tell us about daily shifts. Yeah, the daily shifts is a mindfulness tool for busy people. And coming from my old work in my 20s, I was very much like grind, hustle, you know, wake up super early, gym, work all day, like hustle, grind, and didn't, wasn't taking any time for myself. I mean, for those that, that do read the book, you'll see that I go on an incredible journey over multiple years and really dove into spirituality and self-development and mindfulness. And the gap that I saw in the marketplace was going from like a sales bro mentality to like a yogi. There's a big gap between those two worlds. And so the Daily Shifts is a product that I created to help bridge that gap and to make mindfulness tools and techniques more approachable. So it's an app in the app store where you, there's breathing techniques, gratitude practice, goal setting, and meditations along with much more to help people who have never really gotten into this space to learn to embody those mindfulness tools and techniques. And so we started with an app and that's then grown into an online course, into a workbook, uh, online modules. And now I actually work with people one-on-one -on -one who are really trying to embody a mindfulness way of life that are coming from a really type A hustle grind culture. Well, it's definitely needed. Thank you. You go into quite a bit of depth about your journey into psychedelics in the book. And psychedelics are a part of a lot of ancient traditions and rituals. And as you mentioned in the book, they're now a very sort of hot trending exploration. You know, a lot of people are looking into it for resolving a lot of different issues. And I do appreciate that you include in the book how important it is to be respectful and responsible should you take that path. But the question I have for you is, for those that maybe don't want to go that route, do you think people can access that feeling of oneness or connectedness or wholeness through meditation alone? Absolutely. I've always believed that the psychedelics medicines are shortcuts, you know, um, in a sense of, I don't have to go meditate for 15 years, right, with, in a, with the Buddhist monks. And, you know, you read uh, some of these masters, ancient masters, and their takes on their transcendental states. And they're very similar to what you read about with people who have psychedelic experiences. So it seems like people are getting to the same states of consciousness. But yeah, psychedelics absolutely are not uh, necessary to reach those types of experiences. And I just believe the reason it works so well for me in particular was because I was so far off the path. Like I was so, I was asleep at the wheel. I wasn't even dabbling in meditation and mindfulness. So that wasn't even in my world. And I needed something to really shake me up, to really get me back on track. And so that's why psychedelics work so well for me because meditating or yoga or mindfulness wasn't even in my worldview. And it really just pulled me right onto that street. And so for those that already have a beautiful spiritual practice and a mindfulness practice and a meditation practice, 
absolutely not. You don't need the psychedelics, but for someone who's it's like SOS 911, I need help, right? The psychedelics are a great tool to help you get back on track. And there's some pretty interesting information coming out. I also follow Tim Ferriss. That yeah. you, so I've been kind of watching, you know, what he's checking into because there are some advances being made for different mental health issues and physical conditions where it's proving to be helpful. But thank you for answering that because I was really curious. That actually is my opinion that you can get to the same place. It definitely takes longer with mindfulness and meditation. Right. You've got to do a lot more of the inner work, you know, before you jump into getting some sort of experience. But I appreciate that very much. I will note this too. One thing that if you're, people are looking for a sober, mystical experience, in a sense, breath work, holotropic breath work is a tool that can really almost flirt with that line, a psychedelic state. So if anyone's looking for a sober experience, I, I would highly recommend looking into holotropic breath work. Thank you for that. And I should probably clarify Mindfulness meditation is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about deep meditation or really intense breath work. So it's is what we normally talk about on this program. Okay, finally, in the book, you provide 10 tips for life on earth. Mm. I was wondering, would you mind just sharing a couple with us before we close? Yeah, you know, I, I close with the 10 tips on earth as basically like a reminder. Here we are, for whatever reason, we are in this human body, we have consciousness, and we're on a planet orbiting a star hurling through it basically infinity, and no one really knows why. And can we get back to our humanness and connection as a species? And so one of the tips that I love, number one, is just to be human. Like, what does it mean to be human? You know, we get to laugh, we get to sing, we get to dance, we get to jump in the ocean, and we get so caught up in thinking this economic you know, we have to be producers and, you know, ever do everything for the economy and make money that we forget that we can be in nature and we can sing and dance and we have these unique gifts and talents. And, and that's the first one. Just remember, be human. And I think it's really important that we celebrate each other, right? We celebrate our accomplishments. We celebrate our friendships. We celebrate and we, we make time for experiences with one another and to catch up. And, you know, I really believe as humans, we are here to do two things and that's to connect with one another and create relationships, friends, music, uh, businesses, whatever it may be. And the last tip I always say is, you know, as you can see on the cover of my book, there's that guy looking up in the scars and it says, look up, you know, don't forget to look up. We get so busy with our lives and our families and our careers, and we go a million miles an hour. And if we can take a moment to be mindful and to look up and to gaze into the stars and realize we are literally on a speck in the middle of nowhere, how grateful we are to have this life and remember that life happened before you were born and life is going to happen after you die. And we're literally just a visitor on this planet and to just encourage people to really embody and share your unique gifts with the world. And that's what the world needs is people who feel fully alive and are sharing their unique art with the world. And if you can do that, I think it can really bring a loving, enhanced experience to your life and to the world around you. I totally agree. I keep wishing I could figure out a way for everyone to be mindful because I think it was the majority of our problems. But in the meantime, if it's one by one, we're still going forward, right? Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today and for writing the book. And I will include the information of how people can uh, get more information about daily shifts and the book. Again, I thank you very much. And I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Doug for such an interesting conversation. You can check out The Daily Shifts at thedailyshifts.com.
You can find a link to Doug's book, Holy We're Alive, on our website at amindfulmoment.com. And you can see our full interview on our YouTube channel at Work to Live. Until next time, I encourage you to meditate daily and be mindful in all of your everyday activities. Simply bring your full awareness to the present moment to build your mindfulness skills, paying attention to every detail of what you're doing, from washing dishes to work tasks to taking a walk. Your mind will wander, and that's normal. Each time you notice it has wandered, that's mindfulness. Consider how wonderful the world could be if everyone was mindful. You can help make that happen. It all starts with a mindful moment. Please subscribe to A Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee and rate this podcast so that others can find us. Follow us on social media at A Mindful Moment Podcast. Visit our website, amindfulmoment.com, to access all podcasts and interviews. A Mindful Moment is written by Teresa McKee. The English version is hosted by Teresa McKee, and the Spanish version is translated and hosted by Paola Tile. Intro music, Retreat, by Jason Farnham. Outro music, Morning Stroll, by Josh Kirsch, Media Right Productions. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Work to Live Productions.